We're going to be in Exodus, mostly in chapter 2 today, if you want to turn there. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 45 in your pew Bible this morning. Let me just give you a quick update on my, my father. I, I'm so grateful uh, last week for Pastor Stephen stepping in and Brian helping as well uh, as, as I was away. Um, my dad, uh, maybe you've heard, uh, had a kidney transplant last week or a week and a half ago now. Uh, and, and I'm just so grateful that I was able to go and to be there and to, and to be a part of that in the hospital. You can pray for my dad. He's home. He got home Thursday afternoon. Uh, and, and, but his, his new kidney is not working quite the way that it's supposed to work. It's sleepy is the term that the doctor used, and uh, so we just need it to wake up. Uh, and so in the meantime, there's lots of monitoring, lots of drugs, lots of, of uh, lab and doctor's appointments and all of those things. Um, and so just, just pray for my dad, if you would, and, uh, and just pray for both my parents as they navigate all of the things that they're going through in these, in these next days. Uh, but I'm really grateful that I was able to go and grateful for, especially for Pastor Stephen. He picked up a lot of things that I just dropped so that I could go and be a part of that process down there. And I'm so grateful for his, his help and his work. We're in Exodus. Um, we, we have been, been looking at Exodus. It's been a couple of weeks. We had, had Pastor Stephen spoke. We had a baptism. And so it's been a couple of weeks since we uh, have been walking through Exodus. We, we've looked at chapter 1. And, and we're reminded, even today, as we look at chapter 2, we're reminded that, that this is one big story. It started at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. It started all the way back there, and, and there's, it just continues to build on itself. It really takes off in Genesis chapter 12 when Abram is in, and God have this covenant together. They make this covenant together, or, or God makes this covenant with Abram. Abram really doesn't have any place in it. In fact, God... God carries out both sides of that covenant building part of the relationship, the transaction. Abram is just a, is the one being blessed by God. But in the midst of that, God says, I'm, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. There's, your descendants are going to be so great. They're going to be more than the, than the stars in the sky, more than the sand on the seashore. And so that starts back in Genesis chapter 12, and as you walk through Genesis, that promise, that blessing, seems really, really slow to arrive. In fact, Abram and, and Sarah, I mean, they, they don't even think they're ever going to have any children. They try their own means to try to do it, and, and, and God says, I'm going to bless you. It's going to happen, and it happens very late in their life. And even as it continues on in those generations, it, it just seems really slow. And there's several times where it feels like this plan that God has, this blessing that he has promised, it's, it's not going to happen. It's going to come to an end. It's, it's not going to be finished. And we come then to, to the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis, and, and God has, has blessed them, and God has prepared. He's made this way through the whole story of Joseph for, for Jacob and his family to be rescued and brought to Egypt, and, and, there's, and, and they found favor in the eyes of Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, and everything is going really, really well. And we jump into Exodus chapter 1, and even there, it, it, things are going well, and, and we read that the people of Israel are fruitful, and they're increasing greatly in chapter 1. The blessing that God has promised has finally come to fruition. God's promise is true and, and the Israelites are flourishing. And then we get the other shoe. 
But there arose a king, a new king in Egypt, who did not know Joseph. If you're watching this on TV, that's where the dark music starts. Dun, 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 dun. And a cycle, as I said last time we talked, there's a cycle of conflict and resolution and conflict and resolution. In every good story, there's that cycle of conflict and resolution. And we see that. We see it all over in Scripture. But we see it here over and over and over in this story in Genesis and in Exodus. That over and over, there's a, a conflict. The dark music goes, dun, 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 dun. And all of a sudden, we begin to see the cycle starts. God begins, or not begins, God continues to work and we see the way that he's working. And we see that there's this new king who does not know Joseph and this Pharaoh is, is mean. There's no other way to say it. He's mean. He deals shrewdly with the Israelites. He doesn't want them to multiply. He doesn't want them to increase. He doesn't want them to grow. He doesn't want them to get so large that they join some enemy that would attack Egypt, that, that these Israelites would join the enemy and then they would escape the land. And so he, he, he just tries to, to, to work them, to work them really hard, to enslave them and to oppress them and to cause them to suffer. He doesn't want them to multiply. He doesn't want them to join his enemies. He doesn't want them to escape the land. And yet, that's exactly what's going to happen. That's exactly the result of this cycle is that they are going to multiply. And they are going to become their own people. And they are, they are going to become the enemy of the Egyptians, of Pharaoh at least. And they are going to escape from Egypt. All of Pharaoh's plans, all of his all of his fears become realized in this story. He causes them to work really hard. That's what we saw back in chapter 1. You saw it in, in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. I, I, I want you to see this again. I, I, I made this point a few weeks ago, but they're, they're building for, for Pharaoh, and, and, and they're talking about work. And, and in fact, that, that word shows up several times in, in verses 13 and 14. They were ruthlessly made, he ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And he made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. That word shows up over and over. It's like the crack of the whip. Every time, work, 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 work. That was Pharaoh's plan, but God has a different plan. And in fact, that same word I showed you last time is in Exodus chapter 4 when God is speaking to Moses and, and he's to go to Pharaoh and to talk about how he wants to pull his people out. And he says, then you'll say to Pharaoh, this says the Lord in chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. That word serve is the exact same word in Hebrew as work in, chapter, in Exodus chapter 1. Let my son go that he may serve me. And I told you a couple of weeks ago that God, God in his sovereignty, God in his providence, God in his goodness, God in his graciousness to his people, turns slavery into service. He turns work into worship. He turns burden into beauty. He turns pain into praise. Every crack of the whip that comes against the Israelites becomes a note to the glory of God. God is orchestrating everything, even in the midst of this beginning of Exodus. 
The Israelites are working for Pharaoh and he can't, he can't work them into submission. And so Pharaoh comes up with a new plan. He's going to kill them. And so he tells the midwives, when, when babies are born, if there's a boy baby, kill the boy baby. Let the girls live, but kill the boy babies. And the, and the midwives, Shapura and, and Pua, uh, come to Pharaoh and they say, we, we, we're, we try, we, just, we can't get there in time. They're too fast for us. And the babies are already born by the time we get there. And, and, and Pharaoh's plan to have the midwives kill the babies is, is thwarted. And so Pharaoh, if you look at the very end of chapter, of chapter 1, Pharaoh has a new plan. He's not just going to have the midwives kill them, but he's going to have all the Egyptians throw all the boy babies into the Nile. He can't work them into submission, so he's going to kill them. And I shared with you that that's the same tool that's still used today against you and I. Satan uses those same tools. Satan uses slavery and death against you and I, just as Pharaoh used those tools against God's people in Exodus. And yet, what's true in Exodus chapter 1 is true for us here today at Richland. God uses the oppression of slavery to build and solidify his people. And he he directly defeats death with the promise and the gift of life. He gave life, he gave babies to the midwives, to Shapura and Pua, and he protects, as we see here in chapter 2, this new baby Moses, God defeats death and the command of death with the promise of life. So let's look at chapter two here together a little bit. It's on the screen if you want to read it. It's also page 45 in your pew Bible. We're actually gonna start, I want to read that last verse of chapter, of chapter one, verse 22, and then we'll move into chapter two. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done with him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw a basket among the reeds and she sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and she said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. God is working all things together for his glory. That's a truth. It's not just a truth in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. It's not just a truth as we walk our way through Genesis. God is working all things together for his glory. It was true then, and it's true now. God is working all things together for his glory. He is orchestrating all things 
all things he is orchestrating together for good. God is 100% good. He is only good. There is only good in God. There is no not good in God, no evil in God. He is 100% good and he can only do good. And so as God orchestrates everything together because there's nothing outside of his control, as he orchestrates all things together, he's orchestrating all things together for good and for his glory because his glory is the ultimate good. You have to understand that principle to begin to understand all of these other things that come together here in Exodus chapter 2. He's sovereign over everything. He's working all of the time. His eyes are watching. His hands are working so that his glory might ring out. And we see in this chapter here, in chapter, the beginning of chapter 2 of Exodus, we see that God uses three very distinct and very different characters to bring about his plan and his glory. God uses three different characters, three very different, very distinct, in fact, completely opposite in many ways, characters to bring about his glory. The first we saw there at the end of chapter, of chapter 1, God uses a, a murderous and a bloodthirsty leader to bring about his glory. Pharaoh, who thinks he is the greatest leader, who thinks he's, he's in charge of not only of his people, but of the Israelite people, of all of the people around him, he, he, he believes he is, he is the greatest of all kings. He believes, in fact, and has many of the Egyptian people believing that he is a god. And yet... God reveals to us here in the scripture that he is really just a murderous and bloodthirsty pawn in the great scheme of what God is doing in Exodus chapter 2. Pharaoh has oppression and death as his plan and his agenda. Pharaoh is, is as I said a couple of weeks ago, Pharaoh is, he is the, the serpent, he is the snake. In fact, I, I think I still have this picture in there. There's a, a picture of, of what would have been Pharaoh's headdress, his, his hat. And if you've seen these, you know that, that a snake is, is one of the main features. It's one of the main features of the, of the headdress of, of Pharaoh. He is, he is in, in fact there, but he is in the story. He is the serpent. He is the, 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 the agent of Satan. He is, he is the opponent, not of the Israelites, but he is the opponent of God. And he has these plans, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to suppress them, I'm going to oppress them, I'm going to make them slaves, I'm going to make them work hard, I'm going to push them down, and if I can't do that, I'm going to kill them, I'm going to kill their babies, I'm going to, I'm going to kill all of the boy babies, and so I can, can incorporate the, the girl babies into our Egyptian lifestyle and make them make Egypt make Egypt even greater because I've brought them into our world. Pharaoh has oppression and death as his agenda, but but God uses this murderous, bloodthirsty pawn and says, I'll use that, God says. I'll even use your plans. I'll even use the things that you think are going to make your nation greater. I'm going to use that, even that, maybe even especially that. 
for my glory and for the good of my people. That's our sovereign God. I will use the worst thing that comes against you. I will use the hardest thing that comes against you. I will use the, 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 the most difficult things, the things that you think there's no way out of, the things that you think you'll never escape from. I will use those things, especially those things, so that my glory rings out and for your good. There's something freeing about that. There's something redemptive about that. And that's what Moses, the author of Exodus, that's what he wants us to see as we read through this. Is that Pharaoh says, we're going to kill them all. We're going to work them hard. We're going to kill the boys. We're going to have, we're going to have the, all of the boys thrown into the river. And God says, I'll take that. Throwing the babies into the river, I'll take that. And even use that for my glory and for the good of my people. And so at the end of chapter one, the stage is set. Dun, 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 dun. You shall let every, the Hebrews will cast all of them into the Nile and you'll let every daughter live. And then verse one of chapter two. Now a man from the house of Levite went and took his wife, a Levite woman. In the middle of this, in the middle of, of every son shall be cast into the Nile, in the middle of death, in the middle of despair, in the middle of hopelessness, all of those things are interrupted by a picture, by a reminder of life. Death and destruction. Death and destruction are interrupted by God reminding us of life. A man and a woman conceive and bear a son. Imagine, if you will, there's not much in this part of the scripture that helps us to see it or to understand it, but imagine the command has been put out, the midwives were to kill the boys. That, that plan failed, so now every, every, he, every Egyptian has permission to throw all the Hebrew boys into the Nile, the babies into the Nile. And this man, Amram, we know he's not listed here, but later in Exodus chapter 6, we get the names of this couple, Amram and Jacobed. Amram and Jacobed get together, they, they are married, they be, they're pregnant. And for nine months, they have excitement that builds in them and dread that overwhelms them. If the baby comes out, they don't know, there's no, I don't think, I, I didn't, I guess I didn't, I assume in Egypt at this time, they did not know. There was no ultrasounds or those kinds of things. They didn't know. They didn't know what they were going to have. Nine months. When this baby is born, if it's a girl, no problem. They already have a girl, a daughter, Miriam. They already have a son, Aaron, who was old enough that he wasn't part of this plan by Pharaoh to kill all the boys. But this next baby, if it's a boy, it's going to be thrown into the Nile and killed. And so for nine months, they, they wait. They pray, I would bet. They hope. And I don't even know how you hope. Do you hope that you have a girl so that you don't have to, to worry about it? And how do you feel when that nine months comes and, and, and all of a sudden here you have this, this perfectly beautiful, in fact, that's what it's, the word is here, this beautiful baby boy. 
How do you feel in that moment? Do you rejoice in the miracle of birth in your new baby boy? Or do you instantly feel dread that at any moment, at any moment someone might show up, at any moment someone might come right now, they've heard that we're having a baby, and they're going to grab this baby boy and they're going to throw him into the Nile. For nine months they waited. And yet, God is orchestrating all things together for his glory and for the good of his people. The stage is set, baby is born, and we begin to see how God uses a very different character than the first one. First we see this bloodthirsty, murderous pawn, this leader that thinks he's in charge but really is not. The second The second character that we see that God uses to bring about his glory is a faithful and purposeful mother. Scripture tells us that a woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him. She hid him for three months. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. I just want to take just a, a little side path here for a second. Because we live in a culture, we live in a culture that that has confused all kinds of of gender roles. In fact, we're even confused on on gender itself in our current culture. And some of what happens in the midst of that is is people have have taken scripture at times to to try to define try to define the roles of men and women in ways that, that devalue women and overvalue men, create a hierarchy that's not there. There certainly are, there certainly are, don't hear me say this, but there certainly are roles, specific roles that God has in scripture for men and women. I don't want you to hear that there's not those. There are specific ways that God has called men to lead and women to be a part of those. All, all of that is true. But I think there's something that happens here in Exodus, and this happens over and over. We saw it in chapter one, we see it here again in chapter two. There's something that we see here in Exodus that says, says the Bible does not tell us that men are important and women are unimportant. That's what I'm trying to say here. The Bible doesn't tell us that. It doesn't tell us that anywhere, and especially here in Exodus chapter two. Because, because in Exodus one and this first part of chapter two, the men that we see listed, we, the only men that we know of in here, we see, we see Pharaoh, the murderous, bloodthirsty leader. We see Amram, but he's not even named, and all he does is take a wife and bear a son. And we see Moses in this passage, who does nothing but lay in a basket and cry because he has needs that aren't being met. Those are the men, bloodthirsty unnamed and meeting his, his physical needs and, and a baby who cries in the basket. Those are the men. But look at the women that are listed in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. In fact, we have the names of, of Shapura and Pua. Those are the midwives that, that, that were saving the babies um, that were born to the Hebrews even after Pharaoh commanded them. Twice he commands them that they're to kill those babies. They're, they're named, and they're rewarded with families. 
And then in this passage, this here in this passage, we have, we have the, the mother of Moses who, who does all this work that we're about to look at. We have the mother, we have the, the sister who follows alongside. We have all of the women who are with Pharaoh's daughter who help to, to retrieve the baby out of the reeds and Pharaoh's daughter who rescues and adopts the baby into her family. The women are the heroes in this story. The, women's are, the women are the heroes in this story. And over and over in Scripture, it's not just Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Over and over in Scripture, God points to the roles and points to the things that women have done and says, women are important and women are valuable and they are necessary and they are a part of this blessing. God in his sovereignty, who is working all things together for his glory, he uses men and he uses women. And he uses them in different ways, but he does not use them one more important than the other. There's no distinction between important genders and unimportant genders in the Bible. It's all, God uses all of those things for his glory. So God uses a faithful and a purposeful mother in fact, let me say one more thing about that. If you, if you go back, this is, this is, I think this is, in, is intentional by Moses, the author. If you look at, at the end of chapter 1, it says, uh, Pharaoh commands all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. All of the boys are supposed to be killed, but let the daughters live. It's almost like he says, I don't, I'm not worried about the daughters. We'll, we'll absorb them into our own culture. If we can just get rid of the men, everything's going to be fine. We just got to get rid of the boys. We'll keep the girls, it'll be no big deal. And then, immediately, as you look into chapter two, it's not the boys who are doing the rescuing, it's not the boys who are doing the saving, it's the women. Let the daughters live, he says, I don't care about them. And God says, you should have. They're the ones that are gonna make a difference here. Anyway, faithful and purposeful mother. Moses, Mo, Moses's mother is, is unbelievably faithful and purposeful. It says that, that she sees that he's a fine child. That word fine child, it's translated in lots of different ways. If you have a different translation than the ESV, you maybe even have a, a different word there. You might have good is, is one of the words there. Beautiful is another word there. Um, he, he's, a, he's a beautiful child. And some commentators have said about this, if, you know, may, maybe she'd have made some different choices if he wasn't so beautiful. If he could come out ugly, maybe everything would have been different. And my, my thought to that is, is, you've probably heard me say this before, when babies are born, I think they're all ugly. <laughs> One of mine, I, I seriously thought that it was an alien as it came out. I just, I, I could not understand everything that I was seeing and what, what was happening. But mothers... Mothers see their children as beautiful. But there's another thing that happens here, and this is, the word is, the, the word is good, fine, good, beautiful, translated in lots of different ways, but it's the same word. It's the same word that was used by Moses when he wrote Genesis. It's the same word that's written in Genesis chapter one, when God creates Adam and Eve and he sees, he sees Adam and it's good. That's the word. 
Moses is intentional, the author is intentional about wanting us to look backwards to Genesis, especially as he writes this out for the people of the time, as he's, as he's recalling all that happened in this exodus and he knows that, that his, his people are going to carry it on into the future. He wants them to look back and to tie all of these things together. And so he even here says, this, this baby is born and he's good. Just like Adam, who was created by God, was Good. He wants us to look back. And, and the rest of the story also wants us to look back. She, she, she sees that he's a fine child, and so she hides him for three months. For three months, she protects him. For three months, she hides him. For three months, she does all that she can so that no one knows that she's had a baby boy. But there comes a time when she can hide him no longer, and so what does she do? She makes a basket. She knows that it's time for some plans to be made. I've hidden him as long as I can. I've hidden him for, for as long as I can. And, and now we have to do something else. So for three months, for three months, she's held her baby. For three months, she's hidden her baby. For three months, she's, she's thought and begged and pleaded with God, what am I supposed to do? And it says that she took him and made a basket of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. While Pharaoh, while Pharaoh is building towers for himself using bitumen and pitch, same idea, that's the mortar that we saw in chapter one. Pharaoh's using those same components to build things for his own glory in chapter one. This woman, this purposeful and faithful mother, is building a basket, a waterproof basket. And the word that's used for basket here in Exodus chapter two is the same word. It only shows up twice in scripture. It shows up here in Exodus chapter two as basket. And it shows up back in Genesis chapter six as ark that Noah built. She's building an ark for her son, Moses, Pharaoh is building towers for himself and God is orchestrating everything together. She's super intentional about it. She's careful in her planning of how she builds and protects the basket. I think she's also faithful in her planning of how she's going to release the basket and when she's going to release it and where she's going to release it and how she's going to have her daughter Miriam walk along beside it and watch over it and protect it. She's intentional. She's super intentional and careful about the way that she plans to let this basket go. For three months, she's been holding, clutching onto her baby. She's been thinking and making plans. She's been preparing for how she was going to care for him. And now there comes this moment where she places him in the basket, where she places him in the ark and puts him in the water, doing exactly what Pharaoh has commanded them to do, to put their babies in the water. She's just doing it in a little different way. But she's doing exactly what Pharaoh said, and she's, she places that baby in the ark, in the water at the exact right time at the exact right place in the exact right moment as she's been planning faithfully planning she's been holding this baby and now she puts him in and then she has to just trust she has Miriam to watch a little bit but she has to trust that these plans that she has put together that this 
plan that she has prayed about and prepared for, that the providence of God, that the sovereign hand of God is going to watch over this baby she's put in the ark and that God will protect him. Now, at this point, Moses is only three months old, but, but I think all of us that are parents understand that. I, I certainly, at the stage of life that I am in my parenting right now with my children, there are moments where you plan and prepare. There are all these years where you pour and pour and pour, and, and, and we still are. But there's also this place where I'm at right now in my parenting where I just have to, to let go and trust that God is going to use the plans that we have faithfully put together, the purposes that we have tried to put into our children and that we trust in the hand of God. That's what Jacobed is doing here, Moses' mother. She places him among the reeds. She finally obeys the rules, the laws that Pharaoh has given. She places him in the ark and she sends him down the river. And it's here that we see the third character in this story that God uses to bring about his plan for his glory. He used a a murderous, a bloodthirsty leader. He uses a faithful and purposeful mother. And he also uses a curious and compassionate stranger. The baby's in among the reeds and Pharaoh's daughter is out bathing. She sees the basket She's curious, what is that? What is, what is that basket there? It's unusual to see that there. She's, she's curious. She, she tells her, her maidens to go and to, and to bring that basket. And, and when she sees it, she opens it up. Here's a baby who cries out. And it says she has pity on him. She has compassion on him. Sometimes, sometimes the means that God uses for his glory to ring out is found in just one quick moment of compassion. It's not planned. It wasn't the way that we intended it for be, to be. It's, maybe we're even possibly inconvenienced in that moment. But in that moment, when the, in this unplanned, inconvenient moment, we're moved to compassion and God uses that means to bring about his glory. It's true for Pharaoh's daughter here, and oftentimes it's true for us too. There are places and opportunities that God has put in our lives where he is wanting to use us for his glory to ring out, and all it takes is a moment, a spark of compassion. And God uses that for his glory to ring out. He uses this curious and this compassionate stranger. She says, take, take this child away, she says to, to Miriam, who, who, who bravely, bravely comes forth to Pharaoh's daughter and, and, and says, would you, would you like me to find a, a Hebrew woman to nurse him? And, and, and Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, take, take him away. And, 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 and so Miriam goes back and gets her own mother, Moses' mother, and brings him to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter says, take this away, nurse him. And for several years, we think, she has her own son back in her home, but now is safe. There's no more watching him. There's no more protecting him. There's no more wondering when someone's going to charge in 
and throw him into the Nile. There's no more of that. And in fact, she goes from purposeful and faithful mother to now protected and compensated caregiver. It's quite a turn for Jacobed. Not only is she still caring for her son, who just a little bit ago she put into the basket, into the ark, into the Nile, but now she's being paid for it. And she's protected by Pharaoh's daughter, by Pharaoh's, by Pharaoh's own court, by Pharaoh's own family. She names him Moses because she drew him out of the water. Again, we see the irony in that. Moses is, is drawn out of the water. She, she, Pharaoh's daughter doesn't comprehend, probably doesn't understand the ways that God is orchestrating all of these things together. All she knows is there was a basket in the reeds. She was curious. She had pity when the baby cried. But God had a purpose and a plan. She drew him up out of the water just as, just as Moses. Not only is drawn out of the water, but he's drawn out of slavery. He's drawn out of oppression. He's drawn out of of this family of, of suffering Israelites. And Moses, the author of Exodus, wants us to look back and to see the ark. He wants us to look back and he wants to see that God created Adam. Adam was good and Moses is good. He wants us to look back and see, but he wants us to look forward too. Because all of this would have been written after the Exodus had already happened. He wants the Israelites to look forward as they read this, as they hear this. He wants them to look forward and remember that they will cry out to their God and they will have compassion poured out on them. They will be rescued. They will be rescued from certain death in the reed sea. That would be the same word. Red sea, reed sea. Rescued from certain death in the red sea. They will be their rescue will be, will be witnessed and watched over by Miriam. That, that's part of the story later in the Red Sea. That the Israelite people, that they're going to be moved from oppressed slaves into the royal family, the family of God, just as Moses is in this moment here in Exodus chapter 2. But Moses is not the only baby rescuer that we find in Scripture. Jesus. Jesus was also born under an oppressive regime, under a murderous tyrant who has a command to kill all of the babies that are at the age of Jesus as a baby. Jesus also is hidden by his parents who are, who are given instructions by the wise men to, to run and to flee because Herod has, has sent out a murderous threat to kill all of those baby boys. And ironically, Jesus and his parents with baby Jesus run to Egypt for protection and run to Egypt to be safe. Jesus is hidden and protected by faithful parents just like Moses was. Jesus is the ultimate rescuer. There's lots of other miraculous baby stories that we find in Scripture. Moses is one of them. 
but Jesus. So Moses wants us to look forward. He doesn't even know as he's writing Exodus, as he's telling the story. He wants them to look forward to the, to the rescue the Israelite people will have in this story. But as we look ahead, we see that Jesus is, Jesus is the ultimate rescuer. Jesus is the perfect basket. He is the ultimate ark. Jesus, Jesus is the one who hears our cries. Jesus is the one who has compassion on us. Jesus is the one who draws us out, who rescues and redeems us. Jesus is the one who moves us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Jesus is the ultimate rescuer. And all of this in chapter 2 of Exodus points to Jesus. God is going to use Moses to rescue his people because he's orchestrating all things together for his good. But he wants us to see not just the rescue of the Israelites by Moses, but of you and I through Jesus. It's the same picture. Jesus is the ultimate rescuer. Worship team is going to come and we're going to sing together as we close this morning. I hope that as you see these pictures in Exodus, I hope that as you see these pictures of of Jesus painted over and over again, that you see and rejoice in the hope that we're given, that God is orchestrating everything together. There's nothing outside of his control. He's sovereignly working and orchestrating all things together for his glory, using a variety of means, murderous and bloodthirsty leaders, purposeful and faithful mothers, compassionate and curious strangers, all of those things God works together for his glory, for our good. And this rescues and redeems his people. Stand with me as we sing today. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform He plants His footsteps in the sea And rides upon the storm Deep in His darkened head bright designs and works a sovereign Look.
in Revelation chapter one. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning.